Section 8 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Gaul under Roman Dominion, Part 2. Neither Vespasian nor his sons, Titus and Domitian, visited Gaul, as their predecessors had. Domitian alone put in a short appearance. The eastern provinces of the empire and the wars on the frontier of the Danube, towards which the invasions of the Germans were at that time beginning to be directed, absorbed the attention of the new emperors. Gaul was far, however, from remaining docile and peaceful at this epoch. After the vacancy that occurred after Nero and amid the claims of various pretenders, the authority of the Roman name and the pressure of the imperial power diminished rapidly, and the memory and desire of independence were reawakened. In Belgica the German peoples, who had been allowed to settle on the left bank of the Rhine, were very imperfectly subdued, and kept up close communication with the independent peoples of the right bank. The eight Roman legions cantoned in that province were themselves much changed. Many barbarians had been enlisted amongst them, and did gallant service, but they were indifferent, and always ready for a new master in a new country. There were not wanting symptoms, soon followed by opportunities for action, of this change in sentiment and fact. In the very centre of Gaul, between the Loire and the Allier, a peasant, who has kept in history his Gallic name of Marie or Maricus, formed a band, and scoured the country, proclaiming national independence. He was arrested by the local authorities and handed over to Vitellius, who had him thrown to the beasts. But in the northern part of Belgica, towards the mouth of the Rhine, where a Batavian people lived, a man of note amongst his compatriots and in the service of the Romans, amongst whom he had received the name of Claudius Civilis, embraced first secretly, and afterwards openly, the cause of insurrection. He had vengeance to take for Nero's treatment, who had caused his brother, Julius Paulus, to be beheaded, and himself to be put in prison, whence he had been liberated by Galba. He made a vow to let his hair grow until he was revenged. He had but one eye, and gloried in the fact, saying that it had been so with Hannibal and with Sertorius, and that his highest aspiration was to be like them. He pronounced first for Vitellius against Otho, then for Vespasian against Vitellius, and then for the complete independence of his nation against Vespasian. He soon had, amongst the Germans on the two banks of the Rhine, and amongst the Gauls themselves, secret or declared allies. He was joined by a young Gaul from the district of Langres, Julius Sabinus, who boasted that, during the great war with the Gauls, his great-grandmother had taken the fancy of Julius Caesar, and that he owed his name to him. News had just reached Gaul of the burning down, for the second time, of the capital, during the disturbances at Rome on the death of Nero. The Druids came forth from the retreats where they had hidden since Claudius's prescription, and reappeared in the towns and country places, proclaiming that the Roman Empire was at an end, that the Gallic Empire was beginning, and that the day had come when the possession of all the world should pass into the hands of the Transalpine nations. The insurgents rose in the name of the Gallic Empire, and Julius Sabinus assumed the title of Caesar. War commenced. Confusion, hesitation, and actual desertion reached the colonies, and extended positively to the Roman legions. Several towns, even Troves and Cologne, submitted or fell into the hands of the insurgents. 
several legions, yielding to bribery, persuasion, or intimidation, went over to them, some with a bad grace, others with the blood of their officers on their hands. The gravity of the situation was not misunderstood at Rome. Petelius Cerealis, a commander of renown for his campaigns on the Rhine, was sent off to Belgica with seven fresh legions. He was as skilful in negotiation and persuasion as he was in battle. The struggle that ensued was fierce, but brief, and nearly all the towns and legions that had been guilty of defection returned to their Roman allegiance. Civilis, though not more than half vanquished, himself asked leave to surrender. The Batavian might, as was said at the time, have inundated the country, and drowned the Roman armies. Vespasian, therefore, not being inclined to drive men or matters to extremity, gave Civilis leave to go into retirement and live in peace amongst the marshes of his own land. The Gallic chieftains alone, the projectors of a Gallic empire, were rigorously pursued and chastened. There was especially one, Julius Sabinus, the pretended descendant of Julius Caesar, whose capture was heartily desired. After the ruin of his hopes he took refuge in some vaults connected with one of his country houses. The way in was known only to two devoted freedmen of his, who set fire to the buildings, and spread a report that Sabinus had poisoned himself, and that his dead body had been devoured by the flames. He had a wife, a young Gaul named Eponina, who was in frantic despair at the rumour, but he had her informed, by the mouth of one of his freedmen, of his place of concealment, begging her at the same time to keep up a show of widowhood and mourning, in order to confirm the report already in circulation. Well did she play her part, to use Plutarch's expression, in her tragedy of woe. She went at night to visit her husband in his retreat, and departed at break of day, and at last would not depart at all. At the end of seven months, hearing great talk of Vespasian's clemency, she set out for Rome, taking with her her husband, disguised as a slave, with shaven head and a dress that made him unrecognizable. But the friends who were in their confidence advised them not to risk as yet the chance of imperial clemency, and to return to their secret asylum. There they lived for nine years, during which, as a lioness in her den, neither more nor less, says Plutarch, Eponina gave birth to two young whelps, and suckled them herself at her teat. At last they were discovered and brought before Vespasian at Rome. Caesar, said Eponina, showing him her children, I conceived them and suckled them in a tomb, that there might be more of us to ask thy mercy. But Vespasian was merciful only from prudence, and not by nature or from magnanimity, and he sent Sabinus to execution. Eponina asked that she might die with her husband, saying, Caesar, do me this grace, for I have lived more happily beneath the earth and in the darkness than thou in the splendour of thy empire. Vespasian fulfilled her desire by sending her also to execution, and Plutarch, their contemporary, undoubtedly expressed a general feeling, when he ended his tale with the words, In all the long reign of this emperor there was no deed so cruel or so piteous to see, and he was afterwards punished for it, for in a short time all his posterity was extinct. In fact, the Caesars and the Flavinians met the same fate. The two lines began and ended alike, the former with Augustus and Nero, the latter with Vespasian and Domitian, first a despot, able, cold, and as capable of cruelty as of moderation, then a tyrant, atrocious and detested. And both were extinguished without a descendant. Then a rare piece of good fortune befell the Roman world. Domitian, two years before he was assassinated by some of his servants whom he was about to put to death, grew suspicious of an aged and honourable senator, Cosius Nerva, who had been twice consul, and whom he had sent into exile, 
first to Tarentern, and then in Gaul, preparatory probably to a worse fate. To this victim of prescription application was made by the conspirators who had just got rid of Domitian, and had to get another emperor. Nerva accepted, but not without hesitation, for he was sixty-four years old, he had witnessed the violent death of six emperors, and his grandfather, a celebrated jurist, and for a long while the friend of Tiberius, had killed himself, it is said, for grief at the iniquitous and cruel government of his friend. The short reign of Nerva was a wise, a just, and a humane, but a sad one, not for the people, but for himself. He maintained peace and order, recalled exiles, suppressed informers, re-established respect for laws and morals, turned a deaf ear to self-interested suggestions of vengeance, spoliation, and injustice, proceeding at one time from these who had made him emperor, and at another from the praetorian soldiers and the Roman mob, who regretted Domitian just as they had Nero. But Nerva did not succeed in putting a stop to mob violence or murders prompted by cupidity or hatred. Finding his authority insulted and his life threatened, he formed a resolution which has been described and explained by a learned and temperate historian of the last century, Lenin de Tillemont, Histoire des Empereurs, page 59, with so much justice and precision that it is a pleasure to quote his own words. Seeing, says he, that his age was despised, and that the empire required someone who combined strength of mind and body, Nerva, being free from that blindness which prevents one from discussing and measuring one's own powers, and from that thirst for dominion which often prevails over even those who are nearest to the grave, resolved to take a partner in the sovereign power, and showed his wisdom by making choice of Trajan. By this choice, indeed, Nerva commenced and inaugurated the finest period of the Roman Empire, the period that contemporaries entitled the Golden Age, and that history has named the Age of the Antonines. It is desirable to become acquainted with the real character of this period, for to it belong the two greatest historical events, the dissolution of ancient pagan and the birth of modern Christian society. Five notable sovereigns, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, swayed the Roman Empire during this period, A.D. 96-150. to What Nerva was has just been described, and he made no mistake in adopting Trajan as his successor. Trajan, unconnected by origin, as Nerva also had been, with old Rome, was born in Spain, near Sevilla, and by military service in the East had made his first steps towards fortune and renown. He was essentially a soldier, a moral and modest soldier, a friend to justice and to the public weal. Grand in what he undertook for the empire he governed, simple and modest on his own score, respectful towards the civil authority and the laws, untiring and equitable in the work of provincial administration, without any philosophical system or pretensions, full of energy and boldness, honesty and good sense. He stoutly defended the empire against the Germans on the banks of the Danube, won for it the province of Dacia, and, being more taken up with the east than the west, made many Asiatic conquests, of which his successor, Hadrian, lost no time in abandoning, wisely, no doubt, a portion. Hadrian, adopted by Trajan, and a Spaniard too, was intellectually superior and morally very inferior to him. He was full of ambition, vanity, invention, and restlessness. He was sceptical in thought and cynical in manners, and he was overflowing with political, philosophical, and literary views and pretensions. He passed the twenty-one years of his reign chiefly in travelling about the empire, in Asia, Africa, Greece, Spain, Gaul, and Great Britain, opening roads, raising ramparts and monuments, 
founding schools of learning and museums, and encouraging among provinces, as well as at Rome, the march of administration, legislation, and intellect, more for his own pleasure and his own glorification than in the interest of his country and of society. At the close of this active career, when he was ill and felt that he was dying, he did the best deed of his life. He had proved, in the discharge of high offices, the calm and clear-sighted wisdom of Titus Antoninus, a Gaul, whose family came originally from Nîmes. He had seen him one day coming to the Senate and respectfully supporting the tottering steps of his aged father, or father-in-law, according to Aurelius Victor, and he adopted him as his successor. Antoninus Pius, as a civilian, was just what Trajan had been as a warrior, moral and modest, just and frugal, attentive to the public weal, gentle towards individuals, full of respect for laws and rights, scrupulous in justifying his deeds before the Senate, and making them known to the population by carefully posted edicts, and more anxious to do no wrong or harm to anybody than to gain lustre from brilliant or popular deeds. He surpasses all men in goodness, said his contemporaries, and he conferred on the empire the best of gifts, for he gave it Marcus Aurelius for its leader. It has been said that Marcus Aurelius was philosophy enthroned. Without any desire to contest or detract from that compliment, let it be added that he was conscientiousness enthroned. It is his grand and original characteristic that he governed the Roman Empire and himself with a constant moral solicitude, ever anxious to realize that ideal of personal virtue and general justice which he had conceived, and to which he aspired. His conception, indeed, of virtue and justice was incomplete, and even false in certain cases, and in more than one instance, such as the persecution of the Christians, he committed acts quite contrary to the moral law which he intended to put in practice towards all men. But his respect for the moral law was profound, and his intention to shape his acts according to it serious and sincere. Let us cull a few phrases from that collection of his private thoughts, which he entitled For Self, and which is really the most faithful picture man ever left of himself and the pains he took with himself. There is, says he, relationship between all beings endowed with reason. The world is like a superior city within which the other cities are but families. I have conceived the idea of a government founded on laws of general and equal application. Beware, lest thou Caesars thyself, for it is what happens only too often. Keep thyself simple, good, unaltered, worthy, grave, a friend to justice, pious, kindly disposed, courageous enough for any duty. Revenge the gods, preserve mankind. Life is short. The only possible good fruit of our earthly existence is holiness of intention and deeds that tend to the common weal. My soul be thou covered with shame. Thy life is well nigh gone, and thou hast not yet learned how to live. Amongst men who have ruled great states, it is not easy to mention more than two, Marcus Aurelius and St. Louis, who have been thus passionately concerned about the moral condition of their souls and the moral conduct of their lives. The mind of Marcus Aurelius was superior to that of St. Louis, but St. Louis was a Christian, and his moral ideal was more pure, more complete, more satisfying, and more strengthening for the soul than the philosophical ideal of Marcus Aurelius. And so St. Louis was serene and confident as to his fate and that of the human race, whilst Marcus Aurelius was disquieted and sad, sad for himself and also for humanity, his country and for his times. Oh, my soul, was his cry, wherefore art thou troubled, and why am I so vexed? We are here brought closer to the fact which has already been foreshadowed, and which characterizes the moral and social condition of the Roman world at this period. 
It would be a great error to take the five emperors just spoken of, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius, as representative of the society amidst which they lived, and as giving in a certain degree the measure of its enlightenment, its morality, its prosperity, its disposition, and condition in general. Those five princes were not only picked men, superior in mind and character to the majority of their contemporaries, but they were men almost isolated in their generation, and in them there was a resumption of all that had been acquired by Greek and Roman antiquity of enlightenment and virtue, practical wisdom and philosophical morality. They were the heirs and the survivors of the great minds and the great politicians of Athens and Rome, of the Areopagus and the Senate. They were not in intellectual and moral harmony with the society they governed, and their action upon it served hardly to preserve it partially and temporarily from the evils to which it was committed by its own vices and to break its fall. When they were thoughtful and modest as Marcus Aurelius was, they were gloomy and disposed to discouragement, for they had a secret foreboding of the uselessness of their efforts. Nor was their gloom groundless. In spite of their honest plans and of brilliant appearance, the degradation, material as well as moral, of Roman society went on increasing. The wars, the luxury, the dilapidations, and the disturbances of the empire always raised its expenses much above its receipts. The rough miserliness of Vespasian and the wise economy of Antoninus Pius were far from sufficient to restore the balance. The aggravation of imposts was incessant, and the population, especially the agricultural population, dwindled away more and more, in Italy itself, the centre of the state. This evil disquieted the emperors, when they were neither idiots nor madmen. Claudius, Vespasian, Nerva, and Trajan laboured to supply a remedy, and Augustus himself had set them the example. They established in Italy colonies of veterans to whom they assigned lands. They made gifts thereof to indigent Roman citizens. They attracted by the title of senator rich citizens from the provinces. And when they had once installed them as landholders in Italy, they did not permit them to depart without authorization. Trajan decreed that every candidate for the Roman magistracies should be bound to have a third of his fortune invested in Italian land, in order, says Pliny the Younger, that those who sought the public dignities should regard Rome and Italy not as an inn to put up at in travelling, but as their home. And Pliny the Elder, going as a philosophical observer to the very root of the evil, says in his pompous manner, In former times our generals tilled their fields with their own hands. The earth, we may suppose, opened graciously beneath a plough crowned with laurels, and held by triumphal hands. Maybe because those great men gave to tillage the same care they gave to war, and that they sowed seed with the same attention with which they pitched a camp. Or maybe also, because everything fructifies best in honourable hands, because everything is done with the most scrupulous exactitude. Nowadays these same fields are given over to slaves in chains, to malefactors who are condemned to penal servitude, and on whose brow there is a brand. Earth is not deaf to our prayers. We give her the name of mother. Culture is what we call the pains we bestow on her. But can we be surprised if she render not to slaves the recompense she paid to generals? What must have been the decay of population and of agriculture in the provinces, when even in Italy there was need of such strong protective efforts, which were nevertheless so slightly successful? Pliny had seen what was the fatal canker of the Roman Empire in the country as well as in the towns, slavery or semi-slavery. Landed property was overwhelmed with taxes, was subject to conditions which branded it with a sort of servitude, and was cultivated by a servile population, in whose hands it became almost barren. 
The large holders were thus disgusted, and the small ruined or reduced to a condition more and more degraded. Add to this the state of things in the civil department, a complete absence of freedom and vitality in the political, no elections, no discussion, no public responsibility, characters weakened by indolence and silence, or destroyed by despotic power, or corrupted by the intrigues of court or army. Take a step farther, cast a glance over the moral department, no religious creeds and nothing left of even paganism but its festivals and frivolous or shameful superstitions. The philosophy of Greece and the old Roman manner of life had raised up, it is true, in the higher ranks of society, Stoics and jurists, the former the last champions of morality and the dignity of human nature, the latter the last enlightened servants of the civil community. But neither the doctrines of the Stoics, nor the science and able reasoning of the jurists, were lights and guides within the reach and for the use of the populace, who remained a prey to the vices and the miseries of servitude or public disorders, oscillating between the wearisomeness of barren ignorance and the corruptness of a life of adventure. All the causes of decay were at this time spreading throughout Roman society. Not a single preservative or regenerative principle of national life was in any force or any esteem. After the death of Marcus Aurelius, the decay manifested and developed itself, almost without interruption, for the space of a century, the outward and visible sign of it being the disorganization and repeated falls of the government itself. This series of emperors given to the Roman world by heirship or adoption, from Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, was succeeded by what may be termed an imperial anarchy. In the course of one hundred and thirty-two years the sceptre passed into the hands of thirty-nine sovereigns, with the title of Emperor, Augustus, and was clutched at by thirty-one pretenders, whom history has dubbed tyrants, without other claim than their fiery ambition and their trials of strength, supported at one time in such and such a province of the empire, by certain legions or some local uprising, at another, and most frequently in Italy itself, by the Praetorian guards, who had at their disposal the name of Rome in the shadow of a senate. There were Italians, Africans, Spaniards, Gauls, Britons, Illyrians, and Asiatics, and amongst the number were to be met with some cases of eminence in war and politics, and some even of rare virtue and patriotism, such as Pertinax, Septimus Severus, Alexander Severus, Deus, Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian, Tacitus, and Probus. They made great efforts, some to protect the empire against the barbarians, growing day by day more aggressive, others to re-establish within it some sort of order, and to restore to the laws some sort of force. All failed, and nearly all died a violent death, after a short-lived guardianship of a fabric that was crumbling to pieces in every part, but still under the grand name of Roman Empire. Gaul had her share in this series of ephemeral emperors and tyrants, one of the most wicked and most insane, though issue of one of the most valorous and able. Caracalla, son of Septimus Severus, was born at Lyon, four years after the death of Marcus Aurelius. A hundred years later Narbonne gave in two years to the Roman world three emperors, Carus and his two sons, Carinus and Numerian. Amongst the thirty-one tyrants who did not attain to the title of Augustus, six were Gauls, and the last two, Amandus and Elenius, were, A.D. 285, the chiefs of that great insurrection of peasants, slaves or half-slaves, who under the name of Bagunians, signifying, according to Dukange, a wandering troop of insurgents from field and forest, spread themselves over the north of Gaul, between the Rhine and the Loire, pillaging and ravaging in all directions, after having themselves endured the pillaging and ravages of the fiscal agents and soldiers of the empire. 
A contemporary witness, Lacentius, describes the causes of this popular outbreak in the following words. So enormous had the impost become, that the tiller's strength was exhausted. Fields became deserts, and farms were changed into forests. The fiscal agents measured the land by the clod, trees, vine-stalks were all counted. The cattle were marked, the people registered. Old age or sickness was no excuse. The sick and the infirm were brought up. Everyone's age was put down. A few years were added on to the children's, and taken off from the old men's. Meanwhile the cattle decreased, the people died, and there was no deduction made for the dead. It is said that to excite the confidence and zeal of their bands, the two chiefs of the Bagunians had medals struck, and one that exhibited the head of Amandus, Emperor, Caesar, Augustus, pious and prosperous, with the word hope on the other side. When public evils have reached such a pitch, and nevertheless the day has not yet arrived when the entire disappearance of the system that causes them, there arises nearly always a new power which, in the name of necessity, applies some remedy to an intolerable condition. A legion cantoned amongst the Tungrians, Tongres, in Belgica, had on its muster-roll a Dalmatian named Diocletian, not yet very high in rank, but already much looked up to by his comrades on account of his intelligence and his bravery who was, they said, a druidess, and had the prophetic faculty. One day, when he was settling his account with her, she complained of his extreme parsimony. "'Thou art too stingy, Diocletian,' said she, and he answered, laughing, "'I'll be prodigal when I'm emperor.' "'Laugh not,' rejoined she, "'thou'lt be emperor when thou hast slain a wild boar.' The conversation got about amongst Diocletian's comrades. He made his way in the army, showing continual ability and valour, and several times during his changes of quarters and frequent hunting expeditions he found occasion to kill wild boars, but he did not immediately become emperor, and several of his contemporaries, Aurelian, Tacitus, Probus, Carus, and Numerian, reached the goal before him. "'I kill the wild boars,' said he to one of his friends, and another eats them. The last mentioned of these ephemeral emperors, Numerian, had for his father-in-law and inseparable comrade a praetorian prefect named Aris Aper. During a campaign in Mesopotamia, Numerian was assassinated, and the voice of the army pronounced Aper guilty. The legions assembled to deliberate about Numerian's death and to choose his successor. Aper was brought before the assembly under a guard of soldiers. Through the exertions of zealous friends, the candidature of Diocletian found great favor. At the first words pronounced by him from a raised platform in the presence of the troops, cries of Diocletian Augustus were raised in every quarter. Other voices called on him to express his feelings about Numerian's murderers. Drawing his sword, Diocletian declared on oath that he was innocent of the emperor's death, but that he knew who was guilty and would find means to punish him. Descending suddenly from the platform, he made straight for the praetorian prefect, and saying, Aper, be comforted, thou shalt not die by vulgar hands. By the right hand of great Aeneas thou fallest. He gave him his death-wound. I have killed the prophetic wild boar, said he in the evening to his confidence, and soon afterwards, in spite of the efforts of certain rivals, he was emperor. Nothing is more difficult than to govern, was a remark his comrades had often heard made by him amidst so many imperial catastrophes. Emperor in his turn, Diocletian treasured up this profound idea of the difficulty of government, and he set to work, ably, if not successfully, to master it. Convinced that the empire was too vast, and that a single man did not suffice to make head against two evils that were destroying it, war against barbarians on the frontiers, and anarchy within, he divided the Roman world into two portions, 
gave the west to Maximilian, one of his comrades, a coarse but valiant soldier, and kept the east himself. To the anarchy that reigned within he opposed a general despotic administrative organization, a vast hierarchy of civil and military agents, everywhere present, everywhere masters, and dependent upon the emperor alone. By his incontestable and admitted superiority, Diocletian remained the soul of these two bodies. At the end of eight years he saw that the two empires were still too vast, and to each Augustus he added a Caesar, Galerius and Constantius Chlorus, who, save a nominal rather than real subordination to the two emperors, had, each in his own state, the imperial power with the same administrative system. In this partition of the Roman world, Gaul had the best of it. She had for master Constantius Chlorus, a tried warrior, but just, gentle, and disposed to temper the exercise of absolute power with moderation and equity. He had a son, Constantine, at this time eighteen years of age, whom he was educating carefully for government as well as for war. This system of the Roman Empire, thus divided between four masters, lasted thirteen years, still fruitful in wars and in troubles at home, but without victories and with somewhat less of anarchy. In spite of this appearance of success and durability, absolute power failed to perform its task, and weary of his burden and disgusted with the imperfection of his work, Diocletian abdicated, A.D. 303. No event, no solicitations of his old comrades in arms and empire, could draw him from his retreat on his native soil of Salona in Dalmatia. "'If you could see the vegetables planted by these hands,' said he to Maximian and Galerius, "'you would not make the attempt.' He had persuaded, or rather dragged, his first colleague, Maximian, into abdication after him, and so Galerius in the east, and Constantius Chlorus in the west, remained sole emperors. After the retirement of Diocletian, ambitions, rivalries, and intrigues were not slow to make ahead. Maximian reappeared on the scene of empire, but only to speedily disappear, A.D. 310, leaving in his place his son, Maxentius. Constantius Chlorus had died, A.D. 306, and his son, Constantine, had immediately been proclaimed by his army, Caesar and Augustus. Galerius died, A.D. 311, and Constantine remained to dispute the mastery with Maxentius in the west, and in the east with Maximinus and Lucinus, the last colleagues taken by Diocletian and Galerius. On the twenty-ninth of October, A.D. 312, after having gained several battles against Maxentius in Italy, at Milan, Brescia, and Verona, Constantine pursued and defeated him before Rome, on the borders of the Tiber, at the foot of the Milvian Bridge, and the son of Maximian, drowned in the Tiber, left to the son of Constantine's Chlorus the Empire of the West, to which that of the East was destined to be in a few years added, by the defeat and death of Licinius. Constantine, more clear-sighted and more fortunate than any of his predecessors, had understood his era, and opened his eyes to the new light which was rising upon the world. Far from persecuting the Christians, as Diocletian and Galerius had done, he had given them protection, countenance, and audience, and towards him turned all their hopes. He had even, it is said, in his last battle with Maxentius, displayed the Christian banner, the cross with this inscription, Hoc signo vinces, with this device thou shalt conquer. There is no knowing what was at that time the state of his soul, and to what extent it was penetrated by the first rays of Christian faith, but it is certain that he was the first amongst the masters of the Roman world to perceive and accept its influence. With him paganism fell, and Christianity mounted the throne. With him the decay of Roman society stops, and the era of modern society commences. End of chapter 5